Let us hear the word of our God, Psalm 109, reading from the New King James here, beginning in verse 1. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let the strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like a garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed. But let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame. And let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. As we continue our study here of the Psalms, looking at roughly 20% of each of the five books of the Psalms, and God's providence here is where we are today. And we come to this section of Psalm 109 that some have called the harshest words in all the Old Testament. There is no question that this section is hard, not because it's hard to translate the Hebrew, not because it's hard to understand the point. It's hard because this, it just sounds hard hitting and harsh on David's part. And and, and then what does that mean for us? How should we apply this? Should we? Should we say David was all wrong? Should we just ignore it and, and run to the New Testament? Well, as I've already indicated as we began the psalm last week, I do think that this was written for David in his life and a situation where he found himself, and it does have application for us even today. So let me begin in this way. I want you to think of a time where someone has harmed you in one way or another, is your enemy, and you've asked God to bring judgment Maybe the person who's hurt you has been a family member. Maybe someone that you know closely at work or at school. 
maybe a former friend or a boss, maybe it's someone you don't even know personally, a ruler of a country or uh, some CEO way up in your company or something like that. As we consider these things, our attitude is so important. These are, can you say, dangerous words. And we need to understand it carefully so that we can apply it the way God intended it for us. This psalm is usually considered the most imprecatory of the imprecatory psalms. And again, that big fancy word simply means we're praying for judgment against the wicked. We sang hymn number 61, which is Psalm 83. We've looked at Psalm 7, and in that, we also made reference to Psalm 139. This is not an isolated thing in the Psalms. How do we handle this, especially this one? Hey, could you hear it as I started reading here just a moment ago, especially by the time I got to about verse 10? All of you got so silent. You began to really understand what was, what was being said. These are harsh words. So the question ultimately really for us is, is this something for us as Christians to pray? Can we pray like David does? And I think the answer is yes, but how is the question. So as we saw last time, like David, let us surround our prayers with praise. David begins with praise in verse 1. He ends with praise in verses 30 and 31. He is not blaring on a bullhorn in some demonstration, spewing forth hate and anger against his enemies. He is praising God. Also, David is not taking matters into his own hands. There are 27 at least, so you could maybe add some others here based on uh, just the flow of thought, but there are at least 27 commands, or more accurately, petitions that David utters here. He is asking God to do this. He's not trying to do it himself. He is not a vigilante. And then thirdly, as we saw last time there, especially in verse 4, David is characterized by prayer. Again, in the Hebrew, it's just simply, but I, prayer. That's it. Our translations add some other words. But David is all about prayer. Not just in asking God to judge, but he's about prayer. Praying to God. Praying even for his enemies. Though that point is not brought out in this psalm. We sang Psalm 83 where it is brought out. We see hints of it in Psalm 7 and even Psalm 139. David does love his neighbor and I I think even though it's not stated directly in this psalm, he did pray for God to be gracious to his enemies. But he's, if you will, beyond that here in this psalm. He prays for himself to be humble and gracious, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next week in verses 21 and following about David's humility. And so, again, as, as I indicated last time in more detail, I think it makes most sense for us to see David praying this prayer because of some situation he experienced, maybe at the hands of Saul, maybe at the hands of Absalom, maybe some, someone else. But remember, this psalm is in book five. 500 years, roughly, after David wrote it. And so the people after the exile are taking the words of David and making application for themselves in their own situation. And so here, they're back in the promised land, but they're opposed by the peoples of the land. And so they now are asking God to judge their enemies. Now, as we will see some today, David is not only speaking personally, he is speaking prophetically. These words are applied in Acts chapter 1 to Jesus and Judas, and we'll look at that at the end. And so David is doing that, but I don't think that's all he's doing, as some would try to advocate. And so, lastly, there is application for ourselves, but can you say it's kind of like a hot potato? We've got to handle this carefully, or we are going to pray in a wrong way. And so let's try to learn from David, try to learn from God's word here in this. All right, now if you look at your handout on Psalm 109 and you look at the back page and the, the, 
the uh, next uh, to last page there, you see all these outlines. And as I've told you many times before, these, these psalms are so carefully written that one outline is not sufficient. And I give them to you for you to look at, take them home, look it over. We don't have time to cover everything here. Um, but if you start with the first one, our pronouns help give us direction. David begins and ends the psalm by speaking about a group of people who spoke these evil words against him, these plural accusers. But in the middle, now this section we're looking at today in verses 6 to 19, he focuses on some individual, most likely the ringleader of these slanderers. Now, let me just say briefly this. Especially among your more liberal scholars, they try to take these verses, 6 to 19, and say that this is actually David quoting what his accusers are saying. They're saying it about him. And they get around some of the problems and such that way and and so on. But I don't think it works at all. Because verse 20 then would make no sense. It would not fit the flow of thought at all. And Peter would make no sense. Because in Acts chapter 1, he clearly takes these words as applying uh, to Judas. And that would make no sense, really, if you tried to switch it around. So just a brief comment in that way. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's look now at at the text and using the handout here in verse 6. Again, I'm giving to you a more literal translation because so often the Hebrew is obscured in our English translations. So um, uh, for those of you who want to look at the Hebrew, go ahead. You don't have to. Um, So verse 6, appoint against him a wicked man. And let an accuser stand against his right hand. All right, you see how we have parallelism here. Remember that term means that we are rhyming ideas. The first line is the first idea. The second line rhymes that idea. That's Hebrew poetry. It's similar enough to call it synonymous, but some say, okay, there's a little difference there. You could call it synthetic, but it's very similar. Do you see the chiasm, the switching around of words? And I explain it to you here because it's harder to replicate in English. All right. Now notice what's going on. We started with the first petition in verse 1. Now we come to the second one here in verse 6. And in fact, in verses 6 to 15, there are 20 of them. There's one right after another. And you might be able to add some more depending on how you translate things. The one here in verse 6 begins the second person, right? You appoint, speaking to God. And then all the rest of them are third person commands. Let an accuser stand and so forth. As I mentioned last week, David is intent on relying on God. He is asking God to judge the wicked. He's not doing it. He is at least the king-elect, if not the king. He has the authority to judge his enemies, but he's not doing that. He is relying on God to do it. Very important. And so David here then asks God to set a wicked man, can you say as his enemy's defense attorney, a public defender who receives kickbacks from progressive groups. That's the kind of person that David wants for this wicked man. Okay, for this enemy of his. And then David really is asking the same thing in the next line. May this man have Satan as his attorney. The word there for accuser is the Hebrew word Satan. And of course, we say Satan. Uh, Satan is our accuser. He is asking God to give this man a Satan-like defense attorney. Now, as I indicated last time, so we see here again, there's a lot of language here that calls our attention to the courtroom. And he may have literally been in a courtroom. Maybe it's figurative. But ultimately, God is the judge. David is really prosecuting this man. He's bringing the accusations uh, against this ringleader who is the defendant. And David is wanting this wicked serpent-like defender appointed to ensure this man will not get off. Harsh words, isn't it? But again, David cannot dictate who the lawyer is. He's king. 
he could do backroom deals to make sure this man is judged. But David's not doing that. He's relying on the Lord. Again, very important when we're praying for God to judge our enemies that we're not sticking our fingers in there where we shouldn't. We're relying on the Lord. So then, verse 7. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer be in regard to sin. Two more petitions. The point here simply is, when it's time for the verdict, when the trial is over, declare him to be guilty, Lord. Declare him to be guilty, for he is wicked. In fact, the word wicked man in verse 6 and the word for guilty here is the same word in the Hebrew. We're talking about two different people, hence translating it differently, but it still goes together, doesn't it? Declare him to be what he really is. Give him someone who is like him to defend him. You see how it's all fitting together. David's not wanting an innocent man to be falsely judged. The man deserves it. And we'll see that more specifically in verse 16. And so David then is asking God not to ignore this man. And in fact, to ignore this man's prayers. To treat his prayers as sinful. Now, possibly this man uttered prayers in court. And maybe swearing an oath may have been part of that. Maybe he even asked the Lord to defend him. Think about when you sometimes hear pro-choice people pray that God would bless their efforts. Don't we then pray, Lord, don't answer those prayers. Or maybe you have heard here recently that Governor Newsom in California is putting up um, billboards around the country saying, hey, come to California and we'll, we'll love you enough to kill your baby. And he even puts a scripture verse on it. Our prayer is, God, don't answer those things. Right? What David is saying here actually is fitting, even though it's hard. Listen to this proverb. This is Proverbs 28 and uh, verse 9. It says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. As we'll see in verses 16 and following, this man was turning away from God's law. And so David is saying, Treat his prayer as an abomination. These are harsh words, but they're biblical words, you see, on David's part. And so we, along with David, are praying that God would not answer the wicked, but to stop them in their sin. Now, our prayers should include praying that God would save Governor Newsom, that God would save those pro-choice people. Our prayers should include that. That's not David's focus here, but it is something we see in the scriptures. But if God chooses not to save, then it really is incumbent upon us to pray that God would judge them according to their wickedness. Even tonight, we are going to see Saul pray to the Lord in 1 Samuel 28, and God does not hear him because Saul had turned away from the Lord. This is not a unique thing on David's mouth. This is something we see in the scriptures. All right, let's keep going then. Verse 8. Let his days be few, and his office let another take. David now is asking God to shorten this man's life. Again, this is not David being filled with hate. Isn't it a good thing when the wicked don't live very long? Because then other people are not harmed by their wickedness. David is praying that this man's life would be short so that other people would not have to deal with their wickedness. And in this case, this man is in a position of leadership. He's in some office. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's in the military. Maybe it's in the temple. We don't know what it was. But David here is saying, basically, remove him from his office and replace him with somebody else. Okay? Have a recall effort, if you will. Okay? And, and God can overcome the voting irregularities. Okay? This will then benefit everyone under this man's uh, authority. Okay. Now remember, 
see the flow of thought, declare him to be guilty, and then have him die, remove him from his position of leadership. Now, if this is in regard to Saul or even Absalom, God did judge them, and God replaced both of them with David. At least David was restored with Absalom. Maybe he's talking about somebody else and some unknown person replaced this man. Now we'll return to this verse at the end uh, and the fulfillment in the New Testament. But at least initially, here are our thoughts. So let's continue then, verse 9. Let his sons be orphans and his wife a widow. Okay, now I, I mentioned here, <clears throat> note you could have ellipsis. Remember ellipsis is you're assuming something from the previous line. So here, let his sons be orphans. You could then say, and let his wife be a widow. You could say it that way, and then you could add to your petitions, okay, and that tally. Uh, but either way, you get the, the point, right? He is asking God not only to kill this man, but then to have his children not have a father and this man's wife to not have a husband. This is mean, right? This is cruel, right? We, we should ignore what David says, right? Well, <clears throat> The man called it on himself, didn't he? We're not to verse 16 yet, but we're getting there. This man lived such a life that the consequences of his behavior affects those around him. Not just under his authority, but even his own family. David here is asking God to render justice, and that affects even those in this man's family. So, you know, it's kind of like, um, a teacher, you know, and they, they have a student and they, they give the student a grade and, and the student doesn't like him. You say, well, how come you gave me this grade? And, you know, the wise teacher says, I didn't give you a grade. That's the grade you earned. That's kind of like what verse 9 is saying. Okay? God doesn't give these evil things. The man earned it. And it's affecting his family. Let's keep going. Verse 10. It's actually continuing the sentence here. Let his sons surely roam and let them beg and let them seek from their ruins. Again, your translations will smooth some of this out a little bit. Three more petitions. Same basic idea. May the wicked man's children literally roam, roam. May they beg and may they scrounge for scraps. Consequences for this man's sin. Verse 11, let the creditor ensnare regard to all that is to him and let the strange ones plunder his labor. Now, in this case, we actually have some parallelism, uh, different enough to call it synthetic, but note the rhyming of ideas. Maybe you could paraphrase it this way. The first line, David is asking the bank to foreclose on this man's house. And in the second line, David is asking God to have a public auction to get rid of all this man's stuff. So verse 12, let there not be to him one who extends covenant love, and let there not be one who shows favor to his orphans. Ah, again, harsh words, right? Note the parallelism here, different enough to call it synthetic, but we're still rhyming the same basic idea. May no one extend, here's that Hebrew word, chesed, covenant love to this man and to all that is his. Or we could say, treat him as if he's a non-Israelite and not part of the covenant of grace. And may no one show grace or favor to his children. More consequences for this man's sin. Verse 13, let his posterity be in regard to a cutting off. In a following generation, let their name be wiped out. More parallelism. This one's close enough to call it synonymous. Here in these two lines, note the chiasm, and I, again, I spell out for you how it switches around because it's hard to bring that into English. Um, not only is David praying that this man would die, he's now praying that his children would die and that his surname would be cut off. Note, it's not wiping out their names, uh, but their name. Okay? Fleming name dies off or something to that effect. Verse 14, let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with regard to Yahweh and let not the sin of his mother be wiped out. Again, your 
English translations will smooth that out, but note some more parallelism, note more chiasm, and so on. We've been talking about his descendants, but now we're talking about some of his ancestors, his fathers, his mother. David is asking God to stretch his hand of justice against this man's relatives. Okay. Brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins. Now, <clears throat> it was common in that day for multiple generations to live together. It was not uncommon to have three or four generations living in the same house or at least very close to each other. And so that is likely what is motivating David's words here. And so do not ex- ignore their sin, Lord. Do not forgive, judge them. Maybe you could say it this way. May they live long enough to see their sins ruin their children. These are hard words, aren't they? Verse 15. Let them be before Yahweh continually and let him cut off from the earth their remembrance. These are now petitions 19 and 20, though, again, you might be able to add one or two along the way. But these are the clear ones. 20 times in these 10 verses, David said, Lord, judge them. May their sins always be before you. Do not overlook them. See their sin and render justice. Well, it's easy for us to hear this and just say, we can't do that. That, that, That's not Christian. You know, David is actually being biblical. Let's turn here a moment to Exodus chapter 20. You remember these words in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, and beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. David is praying according to those words, is he not? This man hates the Lord. We'll see that in verses 16 and following. David then is asking God to keep his promise. This man isn't just worshiping idols or making idols, but he is sinning in other ways too. Now, remember, we've got to, we've got to combine the teaching in Ezekiel. It says that a person is judged for their own sin. A child is not judged for their father's sin. But a child is affected by their father's sin. And so Ezekiel makes it clear Judicially, we are only judged for our own sins. But Exodus 20 says, but we're affected by people's sins. So with that in mind, hear the words of David. He is praying that the children would be affected by this man's sin according to God's promises here, according to God's word. So think, for example, of the story of Achan in Joshua 7. He took some of the items from Jericho, and it was found out and so forth. And not only did Achan die, but his whole family died. Not because his whole family sinned, though maybe they were complicit in some ways, but it was because of Achan's sin. They faced the consequences for their father's sin. Not in a, that they were judged specifically. I think it's very uh, safe for us to assume that there were some in Achan's family that are in heaven now. But they were affected by their father's sin. Okay. That is certainly true for Saul. I've talked about this as I've preached through 1 Samuel. Jonathan is receiving all kinds of terrible things because of the sin of his father. Not because Jonathan sinned, but because his father sinned. And he's affected by it. In fact, three of Saul's sons are going to die by the end of the book. And yet, Jonathan's son is cared for by David. Mephibosheth and so forth. So, um, we could spend lots of time just talking about this idea alone. 
But David is actually praying according to God's word, and not just Exodus 20. Let's turn to Deuteronomy and chapter 19. Remember that Psalm 109 is uh, giving us this image of the courtroom. So in the light of that idea, listen to these words. Deuteronomy 19, beginning in verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now, in our jurisprudence, we use the language of innocent until proven guilty. But it's based on verses just like this, right? Two or more witnesses is the basis for innocent until proven guilty. So this now is about a witness here. So it continues, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall <clears throat> put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. All right, many things here. But first of all, David now has someone witnessing against him, right? They are slandering David. And we saw last week in Psalm 109, verse 3, that it was without cause. And in verses 4 and 5, David showed love to this person, these people, and they responded with evil. So, <clears throat> simply, this man is a false witness. And David is, in essence, praying that God would render justice according to his word here in Deuteronomy 19. Now, when we hear this language, eye for an eye, you'll hear many Christians say, oh, that's just terrible. You know, that was the Old Testament. I'm glad we don't do that in the New Testament anymore. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm glad we do it today. Unfortunately, our culture is getting away from this. Hey, we call this lex talionis, the law of retribution, or another way of putting it is the punishment fits the crime. We are living in a society now, this woke justice, where the punishment does not fit the crime. As extreme examples, you know, people are being killed for stealing a loaf of bread or they're being let off for killing somebody. Hey, <clears throat> that's not what the Bible says. A punishment should fit the crime. That's the point here. Not that you literally gouge out somebody's eye necessarily, but the punishment should fit the crime. And notice how that verse began, verse 21, your eye shall not pity. If we read Psalm 109 and David is praying that the punishment would fit the crime of this man, and we say David is just being mean and harsh, then our eye is pitying, and God said not to do that. Okay. Do not pity. David is not being mean. He is asking God to keep his word, to render justice according to his word. David is not ranting. It is righteous anger. David is not just spewing forth. He is asking God to keep his word and his law. Now, you may remember when I preached on Psalm 107, or excuse me, Psalm 7, Psalm 7, that David goes out of his way to talk about how humble he is being. And Psalm 139 has some similar language. Uh, this psalm isn't quite as explicit, but we will see, Lord willing, next week in verses 21 and following, David's humility. Okay. David is being humble here. David probably, though not stated here, prayed for this man's salvation even. But David is not being inconsistent with Jesus' words. You know, it, Jesus says, turn the other cheek, right? All right, we, we must do this. But Jesus is talking about this on an individual, personal level. Jesus is not telling us to turn the other cheek in the courtroom. Because if you turn the other cheek in the courtroom, you are setting aside God's law. And that has problems. Hey, so G, uh, Jesus is saying, uphold justice in the courts. 
But as an individual, be very gracious. Be very forgiving. David here is more or less asking God to uphold justice. Now, on a personal level, we don't know. But if this is Saul, David was turning the cheek with Saul, wasn't he? If this was Absalom, he was turning the cheek with Absalom, wasn't he? But on a legal level, there still must be justice, even in the context of your individual mercy and grace toward a person. All right, we could say so much here. But I do not think that David is unchristian or unbiblical for these reasons. And so now, verse 16, because of which he did not remember to do covenant love. Then he pursued the poor and needy man, and he was humbled of heart in order to kill. David now gives the reasons why this man deserves such harsh punishment. And we now have five things that he mentions in these next verses. He begins here with the first one by saying, He did not show chesed, covenant love. Remember verse 12? Right? I don't want someone to show him covenant love because he didn't show covenant love. You see, the punishment is fitting the crime. The second one here, he says that this man sought to kill the poor, the needy, the humble. You might say he was the bully. <laughs> he was taking bribes. He was ruling against them, whatever it was. You know, he, he helped pass the, the welfare laws. He helped pass the war against poverty approach or the disaster on the border or something to that effect. Okay. This man is desiring to kill. And it's not the governor sending people to Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> it's the people on the border who are actually killing by these policies. This is the kind of man that he, is do, that, that he was. And so because of these things, everything David said prior to this is actually just. This man deserved it. So verse 17. <clears throat> now you may notice the New King James takes this a little bit differently. This is what the Hebrew says. Then he loved a curse, so it came to him, came into him, and he did not delight in a blessing, so it was distant from him. The New King James takes some of that as uh, some more petitions, and, and okay, it's not the natural reading of the Hebrew, though. Um, I, I think this is much more consistent with what the Hebrew actually says. But you see the parallelism here, and notice it's antithetic. We haven't run into too many of those in the Psalms, so you see them in the Proverbs all the time. So he loved a curse, and then note the third line, he did not delight in a blessing. You see the opposite. So it came into him, the second line, then the last line, so it was distant from him. So you see the antithesis there. So this man loved a curse against David, verse 16, against others too. And so God had his evil come against him. It sounds like it's happened at least to some degree already. He did not delight in a blessing, instead harmed others. So, so God kept blessing away, at least to some degree already. But David is asking for more, seems to be the point. So listen then to this proverb. This is Proverbs 8, verse 36. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. This man obviously hates God, and so he deserves death. Okay. Curses. Verse 18. Then he put a curse, put on a curse as his garment. And it came in like water in his inward part and like oil in his bones. You see the parallelism in those second and third lines, right? The rhyming of ideas. You see the ellipsis. Then it came in is assumed in the last line. And there is some uncertainty about how to take this verse, especially how it relates to the next one. But I think it is most likely that this is the point. This man loved cursing people so much it was like putting on his clothes in the morning. It's how natural it was for him. It was so much a part of him, it was actually filling his innards, sinking down into every crevice of his person, all the way through, second nature, you might say. This is how much he lived a life of cursing. 
You know, how a person dresses says a lot about what's going on inside of them. Well, in this case, this man dresses with curses because that's what is in his heart. So verse 19, on to the next page here. Return to an imperative, a, a petition. Let it be to him like a garment that he wraps around himself, and for a belt at all times he girds it. But the antecedent of it is curse. Um, so this is partly why there's the question, how does verse 18 and 19 fit together? I think the point is the man's already doing it, so God add to it, add to his judgment. Uh, but his life is filled with cursing, and so dress him with more curses. May his outfit be held together with curses and make it clear to everybody. Surround him with evil. Give him what he deserves. He loves to curse, so may he be all dressed up with curses, you might say. Again, this is not David being mean. This is deserved. All right, now verse 20 is a transitional verse. It wraps up what he's just said, and then it transitions us to the next part. And notice that we go back to the plural focus. Let this be the word of my accusers from Yahweh and of those who are speaking evil against my soul. More parallelism and so forth here. And uh, there's no verb in this verse. other than There is a participle, but no verb. And so let this be is probably the best way of assuming uh, a verb there. You see again, <clears throat> David is relying on the Lord. And you see again... David is not wanting punishment because he was offended by some careless comment. David is wanting the Lord to punish this man because he deserved it. David is praying for justice. We need to pray for justice. Pray for <clears throat> this man's soul, that God would be gracious. Pray for your enemies, that God would show grace and mercy. <clears throat> But if he chooses not to, we have every right and reason to pray that God would bring justice and judgment against the wicked. Twenty-three times so far, and maybe we could add a couple more here, David is asking God to show vengeance. You see how David, we don't have to wait till Paul in Romans 12 for the teaching of leaving vengeance to God. Remember, Paul is actually quoting the Old Testament, and David is living it out here. David is humble. David starts and ends with praise. David is relying on the Lord. He is living a life of prayer. And, and especially as we've seen here today, David is actually praying according to God's word. He is being biblical. So is this something we should emulate? Yes, I think so. Carefully. Humbly. But yes, I think we should emulate this. So when we think about our enemies, and we have them, we have many of them in positions of leadership in our culture today. We have people who hate us, who want to destroy us, and they're doing everything they can with a smile on their face to do that. Pray for their salvation. But also pray that if God chooses not to save, that he would give them the judgment that they deserve. This must be part of our prayers. If we do not, our prayers are insufficient, are incomplete. Don't just pray for judgment, but it must be part of our prayers. And so then, Israel was basically taking this prayer of David and roughly 500 years later, we're praying the same things in their setting after the exile. And now in that same pattern, 3,000 years after David said these words, let's follow his pattern too. Let's pray the same way. But be very careful about it. Okay? Be very careful. Thankfully, our God is not woke and our God has, does not have no bail policies for the wicked. Thankfully, we have a Bible that ends with the wicked being cast into the pit and being refused entrance 
into the new Jerusalem. That is a thing for us to rejoice over. As I mentioned last week, remember Revelation 19, we get the hallelujah chorus from that, and we rejoice because God punished Babylon. We've got to rejoice. Maybe with a tear in our eye, because it is terrible for the wicked to be punished. But there is joy there nonetheless. And so let's be like David in this way. Because as the Psalter begins, the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment. All right. Well, let's turn then to Acts chapter 1. There are many conservative Christians that would disagree with what I've just told you. And they would say, uh, this didn't apply to David at all in his life. Or if it did, it doesn't apply to us. Because David is being prophetic and it's fulfilled in Christ. And my answer is, it's all the above. Okay. And so let's end here with this word. In Acts chapter 1, let's begin in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And he became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it. That's from Psalm 69. And let another take his office. That's Psalm 109, verse 8. Therefore, right? Go back to what he said there in verse 16, right? It had to be fulfilled because David said so. And so it applied to David initially, even to Israel later, but it also then finds fulfillment here. And so therefore, verse 21, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who is surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Peter applies these imprecatory prayers of David in Psalms 69 and 109 here to Judas. Judas deserved to die for what he did. He hated Jesus. And so he deserved God's judgment. He cursed Jesus. He lied about Jesus. He was a false witness. And so he deserved the eye for an eye, as it were. He did evil even though Jesus loved him. He replaced Jesus' goodness with evil. He certainly had opportunity to repent and be saved. Surely Jesus prayed for his soul in that sense. But you have to wonder, Jesus, we are told, said, Lord, forgive them on the cross, right? They don't know what they don't know what they're doing. But you also have to wonder, did Jesus pray Psalm 109 in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before? Specifically about Judas. We're not told that. But it's possible. Judas deserved to have his office filled by another. Here, Matthias. Presumably, Judas had a wife and children who then were uh, suffered because of his sin. And so, yes, Psalm 109 is fulfilled in Christ and in Judas. But that's not our only point of application, as I've been trying to say. Let me end with this thought, and we'll pick it up here in a moment. Thankfully, in God's grace, he has shown covenant love to his people. We deserve these imprecations too, don't we? We read 
from the catechism. We're all sinners. We deserve prayers of judgment to be spoken against us. But in God's grace, Jesus has taken them for us. And so with that in mind, we will come to the table here in just a moment. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. And, And though this word is hard for us, we thank you nonetheless. Condition our hearts and minds not to sentimentalism, but to truth and true love and justice. Help us, Lord, to learn from David, to to have a life filled with praise, to have a life that depends on you to handle all of our affairs of life, especially when people are mean to us and hurt us in some way. May our lives be filled with humility and reliance upon you. May our lives be filled with your word and pray that, that we would pray that you would keep your word. Lord, we are living in times with many, many wicked around us. In one sense, it's not different than other times of history, but it is certainly something new and unique in our culture over the last few hundred years. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to learn these words of David and apply them humbly and yet consistently with your word. We do pray that you would save those in positions of leadership in our country. We pray for our president. We pray for our senators and our representatives in both federal and state legislatures. We pray for our local leaders. We pray that you would be merciful, Lord. But we also pray that if you choose not to, that you would strike them down, that you would stymie them in their sin and that they would be cast into the pit along with Satan and his beasts. That your name would be upheld, that your truth would be upheld, and that your people would be blessed. We pray these things then in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.